All right, we're going to look at some of the prophecies of the birth of Jesus today. Uh, so we're going to be kind of moving around the Bible a little bit. Uh, we're going to start in Genesis 15, uh, 3, verse 15. So let's bow and pray. Lord, we just thank you as we get ready to share your word. We ask you to anoint this time. Let it be what you would have us to learn. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 3.15, and most of you know because I've quoted this verse many times, it is the first prophecy recorded in the Bible of the Messiah's coming. And it's during the, the pronouncing of the curse on, on Eve, but it also has the blessing on it. And it says in verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, or excuse me, who's talking about the serpent, <laughs> about you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, it shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And we look at this, and we've talked about this so often. God was not surprised when Adam and Eve sinned. Okay, this was not a surprise to him. He did not you know, look down and say, oh my goodness, they failed. He knew when he created them, they were going to fail. Now, I've said, I don't understand why he created man knowing that we were going to fail. But he did, and he'd already had a plan because we read in the New Testament, Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. You know, and you can picture this, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all they are talking about, okay, we're going to create this heaven and earth, we're going to create man, man's going to fall, and Jesus, will you redeem them? The moment Jesus said, yes, he was going to redeem us, it was done. Because God can't lie. So as soon as he said, yes, Father, I will die for the men that we are going to create, that are going to fall, I will come to this world, I will live a perfect life, and I will die for them. And as soon as he said, yes, I would, the Father looked at it and said, it was done. Now, that's hard for us to even imagine. Jesus in God, the Father's eyes was dead before he even created men. He had already paid the price of our sin. This is that first prophet. And we look at there, and it says clearly to her, it says, her seed. Um, now, you may not really understand the significance of this, but he's really telling us it's going to be a virgin birth at this point because the seed is most often reference to man. Man has the seed of, repro of reproduction in the scriptures, not the woman. So this is a prediction of a virgin birth. And it's kind of an amazing thing that God put this in there and says, you guys failed, but I've got a plan. <laughs> I have a plan. You know, I love it that nothing surprises God. <laughs> you know, nothing I do, none of my failures, and none of yours <laughs> surprises God. He already knows what's going to happen and has a plan in place. Now he knows what he would rather have happen in some cases, but he knows what is going to happen. And he's got that plan. Now, we look at this sometimes, and when bad things happen to us, how often do we go, oh my goodness, God, how could you let this happen to me? God, were you, were you out back uh, sleeping when this bad thing came my way? No, he wasn't. He knew it was going to happen. He has a plan for it to happen. You know, this is one of the things that this is one of the reasons I love the book of Job. Job is one of those great books that tell you why everything happens behind the scene is to test us. You know, to say, do you believe and are you going to stand for God? 
How many times have you done something and you say, okay, God, I really think you want me to start doing something, and as soon as you start doing it, it seems like all hell breaks loose against you? And God's saying, well, you said I wanted you to do it. Are you going to continue doing it? You know, a uh, great example, you decide, okay, God, I've got to start tithing. The week you decide you start tithing, your check is going to be short, your tires are going to go flat, your engine's going to blow up. Uh, and God's going to say, well, uh, are you going to? Are you going to? Yeah. God puts it on your heart. God, I need to really start loving this person. Guaranteed, as soon as he puts it on your heart to really start loving that person, that person's going to get very hard to love that week or that day or that very hour. <laughs> <laughs> depending on how close you are to them. God has a reason for what comes our way. Our job is just to understand that he's got a reason. Will we know the reason? Not always. Sometimes we might recognize the reason years down the road or decades down the road, and we look back and say, wow, you know, that, that event prepared me for this one. Sometimes we'll never know it. God was not surprised when Adam and Eve sinned and he had the promise right then. Right then that Jesus would come and that he would be the seed of the woman. And in Isaiah, I left my note somewhere. <laughs> this should be fun. I marked the books and didn't mark down the place I want to go to. All right. I know it's highlighted. All right, Isaiah 7 tells us that a virgin's going to come. <laughs> going to have a birth. This is going to be a fun sermon today. I lost my notes. <laughs> uh, so Isaiah tells us that there would be a virgin. That virgin was Mary. And remember when the story of Mary, we'll talk more about her this month, but you know, the angel Gabriel came and told her, behold, you are going to have a child. And her very first question was, how can that be? <laughs> I'm engaged, but I have never slept with a man. How can it be? And she was that virgin that was foretold that was coming. You know, we look at this, a virgin birth. That is something we have to take by faith because nobody could ever prove that it was a virgin birth other than God saying that it was. That is one of those things that we will never have a proof of. We don't have a DNA sample of Mary and a DNA sample of Jesus to prove that it was, was that way, but we have the word that tells us, and we have the word that tells us that it would be. It's one of those places where we must have faith. Now, much of our things of faith are not really big, big deals. When I think about creation and I look at true science, creation is not that great a step of faith for me. It really isn't. It's, it matches what science would expect. It matches what would have to happen for science to be true. Okay? Uh, the science that you learn in school is all about evolution and everything, and that is not science. It is a fairy tale. That's why it starts long, long ago in a land far, far away. Uh, that is how you start a fairy tale. And that's how they start evolution. They start it as a fairy tale. Okay? Um, and because it is a fairy tale. <laughs> And it doesn't match science. It takes more faith to be an evolutionist than to be a creationist. Uh, I don't have enough faith to believe in evolution. Millions of years ago, nothing exploded into everything does not make any sense to me logically. And that is exactly what evolution teaches. And I just cannot 
accept that. I don't have enough faith to believe that something, nothing exploded into everything. So we look at this. What does the Bible say? It says that he, she was a virgin. Why did he have to be a virgin? Because when Adam sinned, he did it volitionally. He made a choice to sin. Eve was tricked, theoretically. <laughs> uh, she was tricked into the eating of the fruit. Adam willfully did it. I don't know why he willfully did it. He just willfully did it. Like, okay, Eve's fallen and dead. I guess I'll, I'll fall and die too. Uh, but he willfully did it. And because he did, as the head of the human race, he passed sin down to everybody thereafter. And, e and Eve's seed would be the one that would be this, the supporter. In uh, Genesis 49, we find Jacob giving a blessing on his sons. And if you haven't read this, you know, this is kind of interesting to watch these patriarchs as, as they would talk to their children and they would bless them. And one of the things he said to his son Judah was that the scepter will not depart from your tribe. Now this is quite a, quite a prediction because there wasn't a king at this time. And Judah was not the oldest, which would be who, if you're going to pick a king, you would probably pick your oldest son. Judah was not the oldest, but he says it will be, the king's reign will be in your tribe. Now, those of us that are going, coming to the Wednesday study, we're studying 1 Samuel, and you know that the first king of Israel was Saul. And Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So he wasn't even supposed to be king other than God saying, I'm going to make him king because you want a king. Now, an amazing thing is even in Deuteronomy, God had told the people, when you ask for a king, <laughs> this is what the king will require of you. And he listed out a whole bunch of things. And basically, he said, the king is going to take my spot. He's going to take 10% of the 10, 10 of the top best. He's going to take the best land. He's going to take the best, the best of your cooks, the best of your, your people. And the king would be in God's place taking the best. And yet the people asked for a king, just as God said they would. <laughs> and remember that if you read the book of Samuel, Samuel has repeated to them, you asked for a king, this is what a king's going to do. And he repeats Deuteronomy <laughs> to them. And you go, are you really sure this is what you want? And they go, yes, we want that. And then later on, in the, he goes, well, this is what you asked for, this is what you got. And now God's going to judge you because of your disobedience in rejecting him. But Saul was never supposed to be that first king, be a king because he was not of the tribe of Judah. Now, people didn't know their Bible well enough to know that Saul shouldn't have been king. <laughs> you know, and it's an amazing thing as we look at this. How many of us take time to study the word of God and know what God expects from us? Now, we're not bound under the law, but you know, it's amazing when you start reading the Bible, how much God will talk to you and say, uh, this is a verse for you to pay attention to. You know, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, God, you're going to have to help me. You're going to have to help me live this, this verse out. And if you've walked with God long enough, you've got a whole lot of verses under your belt that God has asked you to, to live by. You know, and for our job, those of us who have been walking with God for a long time, is we've got to be careful not to put our verses on other people and expect them to live with what God has asked me to do. You know, because that is not what he's asking other people to do. And this is why I tell you, you can see two people doing the same exact thing, and one person is sinning because God said not to directly to them, and another is not sinning. 
And I'm not talking again when I say about you shall not lie, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. Those are universal thou shalt nots. But you know, I've met people that they stop smoking. And why do they stop smoking? Because they read the verse in Corinthians that said, your body's a temple of God, don't pollute the temple. So everybody that they talk to, they go, this is, this is how you got to apply this. No, that's not. If God applies that verse to you, that's fine. For somebody like myself, we have to look at gluttony when I read that verse. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and I'm doing pretty good nowadays. I don't eat near as much as I used to. But uh, I had big problems with gluttony for a long time. Never recognized it as a sin until God started pointing it out to me. <laughs> you know, but we look at this. What has God told you to do or not do? And what he's going to tell you is through the word of God. And when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ as a Christian, he's going to say, what did you allow me to do in your life? He's not even going to ask you, what did you do right and wrong? He's going to say, what did I do through you? Do you have wood, hay, and stubble, what you've done, or do you have the, the work that he has done? Now, it's an amazing issue, and we've talked about this. I love God's plan. He does the work, and I get the reward. <laughs> now, it's an amazing thing. God, I just have to let you do, you know, you want to crucify my flesh and you want to work out of me? Now, the hard part is letting him crucify your flesh. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big part because usually we get on that cross and we go, okay, God, I've had enough of this pain, God. I don't want it anymore. And we jump back off and say, nope, not going not gonna to go there. And he's saying, no, I want you there. And again, it's one of those things that the more you let him crucify you, the more you see him using you, the more you want to let him crucify you, and the more you want to let him use you. It's one of those things that is so wonderful. You start seeing the reward that he gives you, and you want more of it. I wish we could get to where we're perfect and just give up everything and, and do everything he wants all the time. I'm looking forward to heaven for one big reason. I, don't, I can get tired of forgetting everything that I know. Uh, you know and I'm young in this church, and I don't end up having this problem. I can't imagine where other people are. But, you know, to be able to let God work. What is God asking you to do? He's asking us to love one another, to be forgiving, to be gentle and edifying one another. All of those things are him. And we let him crucify our flesh, which our flesh doesn't like other people. Our flesh does not like to see other people get blessed. It doesn't like to see things, let them get rewards. And God says, let me get rid of your flesh. I want to work out of you. The greatest thing is to start loving people and let God love them. You know, let God love people through you. you know, and you know the difference when somebody's loving you through Jesus and when they're just, you know, lip service. You know, and, you know, we want to be able to look at what is God planned for us? How is he going to keep us? All right. I missed my old Bible. I got this new Bible, and nothing's marked in my new Bible. <laughs> in uh, Hosea, we hear that, that, that Bethlehem would be the birthplace. No. Yes. <laughs> Hosea 11. 11. 1. There we go. Yes. 11.1, and when Israel is a child, no, this is coming out of Israel, uh, Hosea 11.1 is coming out of Egypt. Right. Micah's uh, Egypt, uh, Bethlehem. <laughs> Hosea 11.1, that, that the Messiah would be called out of Egypt. I meant to do this one after Bethlehem, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, you know, we look at this, 
out of all the tribes of Israel, the Messiah was going to come from one of the 12 tribes, and that was Judah. It was going to have to be a virgin birth, we found out. He was going to be going into Egypt and then come be called out of Egypt. Why did he go to Egypt? Well, if you remember the story, Herod had the visitors of the wise men come to him sometime after Jesus was born. Hate to ruin your, your nativity scenes, but the, the, the kings do not belong, the wise men do not belong in the nativity scene. They come in sometime a year to two years later because they meet the child, not the infant, and they present their gifts to him. So tear, tear apart your nativities, I'm sorry. If you want to keep your nativities, that's up to you. But, uh, but the kings come, and who do they go to? They go to Herod in Jerusalem. Why would they go to Jerusalem? Well, they're foreigners, so you go, where would the king be born? Obviously, the king would be born in the palace. So they go to the palace and say, where's the new king? We've seen his star. And Herod was not the king of the Jews by their choice. They, the Romans had put him in. He was the Roman-appointed king of the Jews. And he hears about a king of the Jews, and he gets a little paranoid. He gets so paranoid that he goes and he sends to kill every child in Bethlehem under two years old. Yeah. What, what a horrible event. He went, you know, he's going, where is this, where's this Messiah going to, to be born? And they, and they will quote Micah, which is why I wanted to go first. <laughs> you know, uh, 510? Two. Two. Where it says, you, O Bethlehem of Ephratah, you, and from you shall be born, you know, Emmanuel. And so his leaders tell him to go, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And one of the things that drove the people crazy when they looked at the Messiah's message is, before he was born, it said he's going to be born in Bethlehem, he's going to live in Egypt, and he's going to be called a Nazarite, or a Nazarene. You know, we know how it happened because we know how we know what we see as planned. But you know, what what would you think if you were told this person's going to be born in some town? They're going to be they're going to live someplace else, and they're going to be called some you know, yeah, they're going to be called something else. You know, you, we're a mobile society. We don't have as much problem with that. Their day wasn't very un, was very unlikely to be mobile. You know, even a hundred years ago, families stayed within the same state, definitely, and usually within the same county. Now we don't have any problem. You know, we might not ever see our extended families for years at a time in, at this, at, in, in our day and age, but it wasn't so long ago that every party had everybody there. Grandma and grandpa was there, all the aunts and uncles, all the cousins were there because they all lived within 25 miles of your, of your house. When they gave this message, that was the mentality. If, if, you, were raised in, if you were born in Bethlehem, you would die in Bethlehem. It didn't make much sense that you would be coming out of Egypt and being called, you know, being born in Nazarene. This is also why when Jesus was talking, the Pharisees kept going, you know, we know the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, but you're you're a Nazarite. You're a Nazarene. You're a Nazarene. What are you, who are you saying you are the Messiah for? They never did any study on where he was from. Of course, at his age, he probably would not have been expected to be from Bethlehem because all those babies would, were killed. You know? And this is something that was out there for him. The prophecies of the Messiah are so complex 
that there's only one person in all of history that would ever be able to fulfill all of them. And this is something we need to be able to understand. Jesus walked and he says because he was going to die as the Passover lamb, he had no broken bones, he had no blemishes on his body to be the Passover lamb. You know, how many of us have raised a kid that has a perfect body with no cuts and bruises or, or broken bones? Yeah. How many of us have it that way? You know, I used to be able to say until I was 16 I hadn't had a broken bone, but <laughs> since then I've had several. Yeah. But you know, this was something that Jesus was very special. Born in Bethlehem, came out of Egypt, lived in Nazareth to be called a Nazarene. In a day and age when people were not mobile people, it was something that looked to them and saying, we don't understand this. How many times do we look at God and say, God, I don't understand what you're asking or what you're saying? Now, one of the things I look at, when I look at the end time prophecies and I listen to some people who are so absolutely sure they have it all figured out. And I'm going, wow, I know some Jews that used to have it all figured out. When Jesus came, they had it all figured out how the Messiah was going to come and how he was going to set up his kingdom at that moment. Which is why the Jews to this day consider him a failed Messiah. He did not start the kingdom under Rome. They like it. They see how he fulfills a lot of them, but the most important one to them is the Jews being the king, kingdom where all the world gathers and being in charge of everything. He did not fulfill when he came the first time. And there's, you know, so we need to look at this. Be very careful. When you listen to somebody saying, this is exactly what's going to happen in the future, take it with a grain of salt. There's a lot of things that are pretty clear, but we don't know whether, this, whether these predictions are going to be starting tomorrow, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, Three or four hundred years from now, I don't know. I know that they're all in place. Everything is ready to go. And it could be tomorrow. It could be tomorrow that Jesus comes and calls his church home. It could be two or three hundred years from now. We need to live as if he's coming tomorrow and plan and, and set up for evangelizing the world and helping out. Because there may be some other valley in there. We don't know what's going on. Be very careful because I've listened to people, really been around long enough, I've listened to all these people telling you exactly what's going to happen. And every once in a while, they'll tell you when it's going to happen and they'll be wrong. You know, we have a history full of people that have told you when Jesus is coming back. You know, and I can remember lots of them in my lifetime. I remember 88, everybody was absolutely sure Jesus was coming back because the Jewish people had come together in 48 and a generation was 40 years. So 88, Jesus was coming back. And I'm going, wow, you guys are really accurate. My Bible tells me no one knows the time, so you guys are doing pretty good. And, of course, 88 came and went. The church is still here. <laughs> Jesus didn't come back for his church. So we need to be careful how we look at these things. They're very accurate, but we want to be very careful. It's fun to study the prophecies. It's fun to look at them. But take it with a grain of salt, because if you've studied them long enough, it's amazing how much they change over the years. <laughs> You know, who the enemy of Israel was going to be and all this. For a long time it was Russia. Now we're talking about ISIS and Iraq and all these places, which make more biblical sense to me than Russia ever did. But, you know, we look at all these things and say, God, I want to live for you. Because for me, I'm more concerned with what we're doing today. I like the fact that we've got an end time and that we're going to win. That, I like that. But you know what? 
What's going to what is going to happen has n very little impact on what I'm doing today. I have to walk for God today. What I've done in the past has no impact <laughs> on what's going on in reality. It may set the stage for where I'm at. But you know, we need to live in the moment that we're living in. I've met lots of people who are so worried about the future. You know, I'm, one day I'm going to retire. And when I retire, I'm going to have lots of fun. And I'm going to do everything I ever wanted to do. And one of two problems happen when you get to retirement age. You either don't have the money to do all the stuff you ever wanted to do. Or you don't have the energy or strength to do everything you wanted to do. And you wasted years looking forward to something. How many people live in regrets for their past? All the mistakes they did. Or it could be even worse. You had your successes in the past. A lot of churches have a big problem with this. They were successful sometime in the past. And they live on their old successes. God is says that his name is I am. He wants us making decisions in this moment because this moment is the only moment that I can make any decision for him. I can serve him now. I can plan to serve him later. I may or may not get a later. I may or may not make the right decisions <laughs> later. I have a moment in time now to make my decision. And you all have the same thing to do. We have a moment in time, which is right this moment, to make a decision to obey and do what he asks us to do. In the past, we say, God, forgive me of that activity, or thank you, God, for allowing that activity. It's gone. I want to live forward. When we get to heaven, he'll say, here's all your rewards for what you did. He will reward the past or burn it up, depending on whether it's something to be burnt up or not. But we make our decision today. Today is the moment of salvation, the day for salvation. This is the day that we need to make a decision to, if we're not saved, to be saved. If we are saved, to live for him in the moment that we are in. Because every moment has a decision that we're making. Every moment. And what am I going to say, to the, what am I going to say now? What am I going to do now? Am I going to listen to this person who's talking to me <laughs> now? God, what do you want me to have? What do you want me to say? And this is a message that is taught by Alcoholics Anonymous and Drugs Anonymous. You just live in the moment, day by day, minute by minute, and that's a biblical principle. Now they don't recognize it as a biblical principle anymore for them, but it's a biblical principle. We live in the moment that we're in. When we fail. We confess our sin to God and say, God, put it under the blood. He puts it under the blood. It's gone. And we forget it. Don't be looking at the past and saying, God, I've been so worthless. I have made so many mistakes. All of us have made so many mistakes. Many have, some people have some really big mistakes in their lives. Some people have what we as humans think of as little mistakes. But you know what? God says they're all mistakes. God doesn't distinguish between a little mistake and a great big mistake. Now, sometimes the consequences will be different. But for eternity, there's no difference. God says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Real simple. You know, who, who deserves heaven? Nobody. Everybody has sinned. Everybody deserves hell. 
It's only by the grace of God that he sent his son to die for us so that we can accept him as our Lord and Savior and be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and go to heaven. What a blessing he gives us. We can never earn it. We can never be good enough. We can never deserve what he's going to give us. It is all grace. I really want people to understand God's grace. <laughs> because if we can start understanding God's grace, we should be able to give grace to other people. When we look at people and we go, well, this person doesn't deserve God's love. Well, of course they don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve his love. If it was deserved, it would be earned. It wouldn't be a gift of grace. We do not deserve anything that God gives us. This is why I share with people, never ask God why bad things happen to you. The bigger question is why do good things happen to us? Because we don't deserve any good, any good. No matter who we are, we don't deserve any good. And yet, God gives good things to the just and the unjust. <laughs> His grace is so wonderful. And I just want us to really keep in mind, God has this plan for us. He has a plan for every single person that's on this world, whether they're his child or not. And we need to keep that in, in mind. He created everything. He is in control of everything. Now, sin has consequences. We talk about that a lot. Sin has consequence. When people sin, there is a consequence, and that consequence may include harming people who appear to be innocent of that sin. Now, again, we go back to the fact none of us are innocent, so we're not totally innocent, but sometimes people get hurt by the bad decisions other people make. The world gets hurt by the bad decisions of Adam and Eve. You know, when you think about this, God cursed man, but he also cursed the earth. The earth did not produce thorns and thistles. It did not produce death. And I can't even imagine this, but it did not produce storms and hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes. Those are all part of the sin of man. The power that God gave Adam and Eve to have dominion over the earth when they gave it up caused problems for the entire earth. And, you know, it is such a horrible thing that we can't even imagine what it would be like to live in perfection. You know, and I already told you all, I have no imagination. I don't think of heaven a whole lot because I can't, I can't even conceive of what it would be like to live in a world that is perfect. I just thank God that one day it will be perfect. <laughs> I look forward to heaven. I look forward to the day when we get to go to heaven and stand before God and praise him and just worship him and thank him for what he's done and what the gifts he's given. And then see what rewards that are out there. I look forward to hearing good, well done, good and faithful servant. At least I hope to hear that. I try my best to do what he wants me to do so that I will hear that. I do not want to hear, welcome in by my grace, go, you know, go make a tent. <laughs> go live in the tent over there. I don't think it'd be that bad, but you know, you all know what I mean you know, when I say that. I want to hear, well done. I want to serve him to the best that he will allow me to serve him. 
But you know, the greatest thing for that is God will not require you to be a servant like anybody else. He wants you to be a servant like yourself. What are you equipped to do? Matter of fact, if you're not as well equipped as somebody else, you may look at them and say, look at all the things they're doing, and they're only using 10% of their talent, and you may be using 100%. What did God say about the widow's might? He said, she has given more than all of them, and all she put in was less than two pennies. And Jesus said, she gave all. All she had. She's putting her whole faith in the Father. These other guys are throwing bags of money, and this guy's guy saying, well, nothing there. Nothing there. They gave out of their riches. It's no big deal. It didn't even hurt them. It didn't even hurt them. When, God, when we stand before God, he's not judging us by what somebody else did. Okay? He's not looking at you going, well, why didn't you lead as many people as Billy Graham did to the Lord? None of us are going to hear that. Now, if you're, if you're called to be an evangelist with Billy Graham's talent, you might hear that. But none of us, I think, are going to hear that message. Why didn't you lead millions to the Lord? Well, God, I've never talked to millions of people. He's going to say, did you talk to the people I put in your path? Did you share the gospel? Did you disciple the people I put in your path to disciple? Those are the only ones he's going to ask you about. He's not going to ask you about the rest of the world. He's going to say, Have, were you faithful in what you had. So our challenge for us today is, are we going to follow God who's in charge? Are we going to make those decisions? First off, if you're not saved, you make the decision to follow him in salvation. But for those of us that are Christians, and most of us, I know the people in the room that say that, you know, everybody here says that they're a Christian, but if we're a Christian, are we willing to make our stand to follow God in the moment that he's given us? Who, are, who has God put in your place to talk to? Has he put somebody on your heart to pray for, to visit, to talk to? You know, many of us aren't great evangelists. I can tell you that right off of you. I'm not the world's greatest evangelist. I know how to give the gospel message out. And I shared with you, I, I went to lunch one time with a, an evangelist. <laughs> uh, it was an interesting experience. You know, there was about three people in line. They all heard the gospel message while we were in line to be seated. Everybody around the table heard about the gospel message. You know, if I had told the gospel as much as he did, I'd have sounded obnoxious by the time I had said it, but it came natural to him, and it worked well. I don't compare myself to him. I was amazed by him. I'm going, God, I would love to be able to do this sometime. But, you know, maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. But you know, At the time, I'm going, wow, God, this is so impressive. But he does have people in our lives that we're to talk to. Do you have anybody in your life that you have not talked to the gospel about? Shared the gospel message of Christ? Especially if they're family or a friend? Take a moment to talk to them. Ask God to give you the opportunity to just tell them about God. And you may stumble and fall all over your words, and that's okay too. I, I can remember when I was first saved, I, I used to be telling everybody. Didn't know anything. All I knew is that Jesus came into my life and changed me, and I told everybody. It's amazing how much I've lost of that aspect, even myself. I still tell a lot of people. I talk to people at the prison all the time about Jesus and everything. But, you know, I want to challenge us to really look to God. And I want to challenge you to make a prayer each morning to say, God, Give me one person to share the gospel with today and then be ready to speak to them when they do. <laughs> we, 
we did the evangelism class, and that was one of the things they asked us to do. And then people would come down last week, well, I missed the opportunity. <laughs> I, made, I said the prayer, and then I realized after the fact that that was the person I was supposed to talk to. But I want to challenge you, think about God and, and sharing the gospel with people. We've got all kinds of tracks in the hallway. Grab tracks. <laughs> Keep some tracks on you. If you can't speak the word, at least give them a track. You know, we have one person who gives out hundreds of tracks each month, it seems like. <laughs> you know, but, you know, are we trying to reach out to other people? Do what you can, because the one thing you do, the more you do it, the easier it gets. The more you pray, the easier it gets to pray. The more you get used to asking God for requests, the easier it gets. The more you give the tithe, the easier it gets. And then God asks you to get more than the tithe. <laughs> but, you know, he keeps saying, I want more from you. The more you start loving people, the easier it gets to love them. The more you start forgiving people, the easier it gets to forgive them. Because God starts working, saying, oh, you, you were faithful in this. Let me give you a little more. Oh, you, you've been faithful in that? Let me give you a little more. It is a wonderful thing to watch God work in your life. As a pastor, I, it's a wonderful thing for me to watch God work in other people's lives. At least what I can see in, in their lives. And I love watching what God is doing in people's lives and watching the love that's coming out and the, and the care for God. And he's, the challenge for us is, are we going to make the decision to live the way he wants us to? Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank for this great opportunity to come before you. Lord, if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know you, we ask that right now that they will confess that they're a sinner repent of their sins and ask you to come into, your, into their heart and then talk to myself or one of the other Christians and, and the, that they know. Lord, for those of us that are Christians, we ask that you put it on our heart to serve you more in a tighter and deeper way. Lord, teach us to follow you. Help us to make better decisions. Put your spirit upon us in a heavy way so that we will get to where we must speak your word. We must tell others about you because you're so crucifying our flesh. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.